Good evening, everybody. Uh, this is Lawrence Steinlog again. I get the distinct honor of uh, taking over the microphone tonight for Rick Clark. Uh, just talked to him. He's in, uh, I believe, Austin. He might be joining us if he gets a uh, good enough signal tonight. He's flying back home, I believe. But uh, he gave me the chance to, he always says, interview whoever you want. And, uh, you know, when he told me, I, I got a hold of Klaus and I said, hey, would you be interested in doing this? And uh, I guess I'll, I'll give you a little background here. I go back uh, a couple of years ago, I was asked to go to O'Grain. First time I was ever to that meeting, Aaron Silva was having a no-till think tank. And I was invited there to see if some of the stuff I'm working on would help bring no-till into the organic atmosphere and uh there was a couple guys there i believe i met rick clark there that night i would already met rick but uh there was this guy speaking i walked in the room and i was like this is somebody i gotta pay attention to and i believe we sat down and had a few conversations over the court well actually i was only going to go up there for that that meeting that night i drove home two and a half hours and i was so intrigued i drove right back the next day and stayed two more days for the rest of the conference but uh I got the distinct honor to introduce Kloss tonight. Uh, I guess we'll, we bet, I forgot last time to use Rick's tagline, giddy up, let's go. We're going to start with Rick's favorite uh, first question. Kloss, what is on your mind right now? What's okay. going on in your mind? What are you thinking? Right now, I'm most concerned about what's going on in Ukraine. This is affecting the whole world in so many different ways that we don't, we can't even understand all of this. But food is back in focus. There won't be enough food in the world this year with the Black Sea crop, especially the Ukrainian crop, not able to come to market. And I think we're being challenged to, to rise to this and, and feed people. And I'm not sure we're doing a great job of it. Yeah. So. I, I, that, that's really foremost on my mind as we're planting crops and figuring out what we should do. Well, and I, I, I was hoping you were going to go there. That's kind of one of my further down the line questions. I wanted to really dive into your heritage and that. I know that was one of the conversations we had that night. Could you, do you care to divulge on your heritage? And, you know, I, I, I got to know Ukraine this winter when I was over there, but uh, I, I knew it was pretty pretty on the forefront of your mind. So if you care to indulge a little bit on your European history and that. Yeah. So I've, my father was actually from East Frisia, which is right on the Dutch border. But my mother and her family had been over 800 years living in uh, what's now Poland, East Prussia. And they were part of a Mennonite community. And uh, that group of Mennonites was the cousins and relatives of the Ukrainian and Russian Mennonites, which whenever uh, a leader in Germany restricted the exemption from military service, a group who couldn't go with that would move out together. And you know, quite a few of those groups went to the, went into Ukraine. And sadly, my grandfather was the first person in their village that was drafted in World War II when Hitler took over. And he came back singing about the greatest soil in the world, the deepest, blackest, stone-free soil where everything grew. And that was, he was talking about Ukraine. So I, I've got connections 
that make me really aware of that. And well, then, I, go ahead. Then if you're that deeply connected, uh, you know, this, this last fall there, I met a young gentleman from Texas. His family was one of the, how would I phrase that? They were the Mexican Canadian Mennonites that went from Ukraine. They, they exported from Ukraine to Canada. Then, yes. Then they went to Mexico and now they're actually in Texas. I actually met a few of uh, that community once and uh, it was interesting. He addressed me of uh, and that, that's the dialect of German that I grew up here. <laughs> of course, it's changed a little now. They've added some Mexican or some, you know, Spanish and some English yep. to it. But uh, that dialect sounds very familiar to me. Well, that's, you know, two, well, I forget what year I was in Germany there. And then this winter, I did a deal in uh, South Africa, and they, they started speaking, what, what kind of German? Do they, well, it's actually... Uh, Afrikaans. Afrikaans, they speak there, and I, I was shocked. I could start picking that up very quick. Yes. And it, it is just neat how that whole language intermingles over there. And that evening, Rick, I see you found signal. Yes, how are we doing tonight? Klaus, how are you doing? Hi, good. Thank you for inviting yeah. me. We're lucky. That well, was just a little too wet to cultivate tonight. <laughs> well, good. I'm glad you were able to join. Thank you. <laughs> well, we hosted, uh, back on what we were just talking about, we hosted a father and son from South Africa. Uh, they were boar farmers who wanted to learn about organic farming here just a few years ago. And it was interesting hearing the Afrikaans. They were saying they could understand Flemish because of Afrikaans. And I found that I could understand Flemish. In fact, the first time I ever heard it, I was thinking to myself, that's the worst German I ever heard in my life. And then I realized it wasn't German. <laughs> well, I, I, do, I do know this much. When I was in German in high school, I was pretty fluent in uh, native German. And uh, I got told at that time, son, that's low German. We teach high German. Yeah. My mother demanded that I learn high German. and My grandmother really tried to enforce it. But uh, she would always catch me with certain words and saying, you learned that from your grandfather. We try to speak high German. <laughs> well, the, the, the good news is I finally got some of that translated. Uh, well, it was the year we quit milk and the, the Am local Amish came in and started taking all our milking equipment. Mm -hmm. And uh, I, I remembered enough of the old low German that I got some, I even made some of them blush. So I know it was pretty low German. <laughs> <laughs> you, were, you were pretty good, yes. So it was turned out to be really useful to me because so much early research was done in Germany. Yep. Now, one of the few decent things Hitler did was funded a lot of agricultural research. Just because it was funded by a guy who was no good doesn't mean that the research was no good. And well, that was that was one of my last questions, but we'll bring that to the fourth. What was the name of the Ger 1800 German researcher that you like to bring up? nobody can well, the one Bernard Rademacher was the one who had the biggest effect on me and it's because when I started studying how to farm organically we we had I'd grown up in the university system we've learned to farm quote correctly and I was um, I discovered that the what we learned about agriculture was not predicting the results we were seeing in our fields it bothered me because if the system, if the assumptions we're working under 
And if the system that we've learned is correct, it's going to accurately predict what we see happening. But it didn't. And that, uh, along with the fact that we weren't making any money, forced us to look at other markets. And I had lots of ideas, most of them lousy, most of them didn't work, but we did discover a demand for organic crops. And right about the time of the Alar scare, there suddenly was an explosion in demand. And we were fortunate, and I think in, right in Decora, you were in the same area where the Vinton 81 soybeans grow. Yep. And the Japanese love the flavor of Vinton 81 soybeans and they liked organic Vinton 81s. And that created a market. It also created a problem because everybody was trying to figure out every which way to cheat and grow soybeans after soybeans after soybeans on their land because that was the profit crop and everything else was being grown just because you had to. So to fast forward a little bit, I've learned a general principle in farming that I've never seen an exception to. And that is whenever we have a really big agronomic problem, a pest, be it an insect, a weed, a disease, whatever, we have learned that we could solve it by introducing a new species into our system. In fact, those problems that were causing us the, the most grief were more symptoms of an imbalanced agricultural system than they were problems in themselves. And I think nature was actually trying to rebalance our system by introducing a new species we didn't like. And when we introduced all that weed. Exactly. And when we introduced a species that would accomplish that job, suddenly the reason for the pest being such a problem went away. And I, I think there's a lot of potential there. Before we leave your education there, what were some of the early signs you've seen that didn't quite start matching up? Well, we kept having, every time we thought we had things figured out, we would have a new problem. So especially with weeds, uh, atrazine was a miracle. And then all of a sudden, these blankety blank people must be buying weeds in their bird seed because we've got all these summer grasses that are getting biased. And then we had to add another herbicide. And then a little later, it was another herbicide. And it seemed like every one of the problems we solved didn't stay solved very long. There was always a new problem coming. And that just, it just didn't sit well. But the bigger thing that was happening was that instead of the soil getting better and better, we could see the soil starting to get worse. So if our yields were high and we were doing everything right, like we were told we were, why was the soil suddenly becoming less cooperative? You know, why, why, were, why was it not smelling like it used to? In fact, that's, that's a story I've told many times that when I was little, I used to be a real pain in the butt because whenever someone went out to plow, I wanted her to go along. Mm -hmm. And my father had a way of sticking me in the seat so I wouldn't fall out. And there was a smell that was ingrained in my memory. I've been told since it has a name. It's called geosin. And it's produced by actinomyces, which is one of the organisms in the soil. And uh, doctors have since told us that that smell and those gases actually make us happy. They're actually very healthy for our minds. And I hadn't noticed that over the years of using chemicals that that smell went away until when we went back to organic, suddenly I smelled it again. 
and it, it was kind of a memory that was coming back. And it's, it's, you don't notice losing it, but you sure notice it when you smell it again. Mm-hmm. And that, that was telling me something that there, there were changes in the soil that we were not predict that were not being predicted and that we were really not being told about. It was all supposed to be random. You know, farming was a system, it was a series of solving random problems. And there really was nothing random about these problems. They were the direct result of what we were doing. But I didn't see it that way because I was farming under a set of assumptions that did not predict what was happening. And that, that kept nagging me saying that if, my, if the assumptions I'm working under are correct, they're going to line up with what I'm seeing. But they didn't. That, that's really bothersome. So I'll go back to this Dr. Rademacher. He was the guru of weeds in Germany. And actually the old Crafts and Raynor American agronomy texts had lifted huge chunks of Rademacher's work. In fact, I remember reading that text and wondering why some of the charts were in German and why the varieties they were working with were German varieties in an American text, but it's because they'd lifted so much of his work. And there's a quote in there that I can remember verbatim because it upset the way I was looking at the world. He said, cultural practices form the basis of all weed control, while the various other means should be regarded as auxiliary only. Now, another thing about Dr. Rademacher was he was the pioneer who started using herbicides. In fact, he described the first chemical weed controls in his work, and yet he was the harshest critic of them. That was an interesting thing to me that here is the guy who's pioneering and studying how to use poisons to kill weeds is the one who's saying this is not the right way to do it. And along with Dr. Rademacher, there was another huge influence in my life. A bunch of people that are dead, and I was really lucky they wrote books so that I could be taught by them, was Sir Albert Howard in... England. And an interesting quote from him, he said that he was educated in the best agricultural universities in the world. And then he went to India to teach those ignorant peasants how to farm. But when he got to India, he met his real professors. It was those ignorant peasants. And he saw, he described something there that he instituted the system of farming that's used in Northern Europe, where you plow down clover, and then you grow your crop. And he made the Indians do that. And it was a disaster. The Indians would remove all the organic matter ahead of the monsoon season that was on top and put it in piles to compost it. And they built these compost piles really carefully. And then when the monsoon season was over, they would put that material back on the land. He found that when he plowed it under, there was no organic matter left. So what they had been doing traditionally was working, but he brought in didn't. And he actually was humble enough to realize that something he'd learned wasn't correct or something he didn't know something. And what he discovered was that if you put all that organic matter in the ground and then have it go anaerobic, covered with water, no oxygen, what happens to organic material when it's anaerobic? We get fermentation. We get products like CO2, alcohol, ethylene, Methane, all things that are not terribly good for the soil, and it's not humus, it's not organic material. And 
And that was just one little piece of what he learned there. He also saw this connection between health and the soil and saw that this diverse system that the Indian peasants were farming, those crops didn't seem to get sick. They didn't seem to get bugs. And the people who ate those crops seemed to be really healthy. I'm going to skip around a little on you. Yes. Dr. Albrecht is another one of these brilliant people who had a major impact on me. And I was really fortunate when I went to college, they had an old professor. I went to a two-year school, not to Cornell. And I think they put him there so that he wouldn't contaminate the minds of far, too many important farmers. And that was Dr. Curtis. Dr. Norman Curtis was a lifelong friend of William Albrecht's. They were college classmates together and they actually worked out the Albrecht system together. And Dr. Curtis taught hundreds and hundreds of agronomists in the East, basically what we would call the Albrecht system. And like a fool, I was exposed enough to Dr. Curtis to, to get a lot of interesting information, but boy, would I like to be able to go back to the well now. But I guess I should be just glad that I had that kind of exposure. Uh, another influential person way back, again, through the writing, Andre Boisson who we remember most for the grazing system that he described. But his biggest impact on me was a book that he wrote called Soil, Grass, and Cancer. And when he wrote Soil, Grass, and Cancer, he was doing a detective story about why certain villages in Europe seemed to be very healthy and other ones were really sick. And foot and mouth disease or hoof and mouth disease was a real problem at the time. And he noticed that there were certain villages got attacked over and over and over. And other ones seemed to be immune. And yet the, the livestock was the same. The culture was the same. The farmers were the same. They were doing the same methods. And he said, there's got to be something going on here. Why are these certain villages kind of charmed that it goes around them? He noticed after doing a lot of studying that it was this, the parent material of the villages that had a lot of trouble with hoof and mouth disease was the same. They were the same soil groups. And the villages that seemed to have immunity were also all the same soil group, but it was a different soil group than where the animals were getting sick. And he tied this back to the soil. And what's interesting is that it was the calcareous soils is where the animals were getting hoof and mouth disease with, with calcareous parent material. And I think if we backed up and checked a little further, it was probably too high a pH, too much lime in that soil. And the other soils were more of a granitic base, which would have been a higher potassium type soils. And that connected back. Now, Dr. Albrecht originally wanted to be, skipping around on you, but originally wanted to be a doctor. And he studied draft records for World War I. And he found there were some counties in Missouri where there were a lot of men that weren't fit for military service. And he found there were other counties where almost everybody was fit for military service. And he started asking, huh, what's going on here? Similar to, to uh, Wasan, Dr. Albrecht overlaid this with soil types. And he found that there seemed to be the healthiest men were coming from areas that had the same soils. And the really unhealthy men were coming from different soils. And he was tying that back to, to the human health. So there, there were some really interesting threads here on three different co continents and these brilliant old 
professors were making connections that were really similar to each other. And these guys knew each other. And uh, Vasan was older, but these people corresponded with each other. Vasan wrote another um, book. It was just a pamphlet. And it was in response to Eustace von Liebig. Now, von Liebig is known to be the author of the law of the minimum, where the barrel, where the shortest stave sets the yield. Vasan answered him writing a pamphlet that he called the law of the maximum. And the law of the maximum says when you've got an excess of one mineral, it can induce a shortage of another one. So it's not as simple as just filling the barrel up or raising the staves. So this, this was just another one of these insights. What I'm finding as, as I've studied organic history is that we're not going back to the old days. We're not going back to the 30s. What we're doing is going to a time when we were at a fork in the road and agriculture had severe problems. And it made some decisions as to how to deal with those problems. And there were really intelligent men and women there at the time who said, this is the wrong solution to these problems. And we're going back to that fork when we, when we farm organically and we're taking a different approach to the same problems. But we're not going back to this time in the 30s when agriculture was not sustainable. We're just finding different solutions that are more sustainable because we are fast running into trouble today. And I, uh, another piece that I've done is a lot of studying of world history. Almost every civilization in history has done well when their soils were doing well and has failed when their agriculture failed. In fact, there's a, a history book that uh, Bill Clinton actually quoted from it. All of our leaders that went to Princeton had to take this class. And in that book, they described these competing agricultural systems that when a, when a new force or a new civilization came that had a better agricultural system or a younger agricultural system that was more successful, they inevitably outcompeted the old group whose agricultural system was not as good. So that, that's kind of the other side of that story. And our system is not that old. Yep. <laughs> we haven't been doing this all that long. Uh, early, another early teacher that we went to, we went to Cornell, and it, it was interesting when we went to Extension and said, we're, we're thinking about farming organically because the prices are so good. We're not making enough money. This is in the 80s. And he said, well, you know, hippies can, might be able to do this in their backyard in a garden, but it, it's ridiculous to think about it on a field scale. And of course, that was all the encouragement I needed to get started. But we also at Cornell found some professors who were doing interesting work. And more importantly, these, some of these people I've just mentioned, my wife worked for Cornell and was able to get me into the library. And when we looked at organic, I wanted to see what machines they were using to control weeds before we had herbicides and what materials we were using for fertilizer before we had the chemical fertilizers. Basically figure out how were they farming before 1945. And in the main part of the library, there were no books written before then, at least not on agriculture. But the stacks, which is the old archives, is where those books were. And that's where I met Dr. Albrecht <laughs> through his writing and a lot of these other uh, people. And that's that was a real treasure trove for me of this different thought 
There was another thing that Dr. Adamaha wrote that stayed with me. And that is, he wrote that every crop should be planted after its most suitable predecessor. So that the growth of the weeds is checked by the vigor of the crop alone. You know, rotation effect, but it's not just any rotation. It has to be the most suitable predecessor. There are certain orders of crops that like to grow after each other. And I found an old agriculture book, 100 years old that my great uncle had had when he was in Germany. And it had rotations that went out seven, eight, 10 years of certain crops that you do it, this crop, then you grow that crop, then you grow that crop. This had been figured out over time. Uh, we lost a lot of this lore. We lost a lot of this local knowledge of what works. I mean, they might have known, not have known exactly why it worked, but they knew that it worked. And they were pretty smart farmers too back then. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the only place I can even find stuff close to that now is gardening books. That's right. You know, when yes. I started paying attention to that stuff, it was all gardening books and that you can find it. But then you have to figure out how to translate it into the agricultural world. And, you know, cover crops is easy to translate it, you know, because a yes. lot of your garden crops can translate pretty easy. But then to translate that to actual row crops is a challenge. So, okay. Uh, there's and a the Sutter is asking, what was the name of that book? Okay, the, the one of Dr. Adamafas? With the rotations. Okay, the, that was a paper written by Dr. Adamafa in German in 1939, and it was published in an American journal called, or in a British journal called Herbage in an English translation. And it's on eOrganic, which is the most awful, unfriendly website I've ever found in my life, but I know that there's a copy of it electronically on eOrganic. I've not yet figured out how to crack that nut and get to it. But that journal herbage is at a lot of university libraries. In fact, Cornell had two copies and they, they threw out one of the two. If I'd known they were throwing it out, I would have been there to get it. But, <laughs> and that, uh, that paper was titled uh, Just Weeds. Okay. And uh, the old Crafts and Raynor textbook that was used in the United States in the 1950s was the book that heavily lifted things from Dr. Adamaha's work. And he, another thing I found in the Cornell Library was two PhD theses of students that Dr. Adamaha had in the 1950s. And they, those were theses on using tine weeders for controlling weeds and crops. And boy, he was a tough professor. He made them do an awful lot of counting and it took them an extra year or two to get all the data before he let them get their PhDs. And just by chance, I met, and I guess there are no coincidences, but I met one of Dr. Adamaha's students once. He, he was a, a German agronomist who brought a tour of German farmers to the United States. And we got talking and I said, have you ever heard of Dr. Adamaha? And his jaw just about hit the ground and said, how do you know old Adamaha? He said, I did, he was my graduate advisor. <laughs> so that, that was kind of a small world type story. Well, there's a, there's a young gentleman I'll have to try to get you in contact with that from Germany right now. He was our host when we were over there. He's going back and reading all the old German annals and stuff like that. And 
I'm trying to remember his name right now. I'm still in contact with him on Twitter, but uh, okay. they're, having, they're having their first big field day over there this week, so I know he's not on tonight, but uh, he's he's a very good contact over there. But uh, I've got a, a friend there who's a young uh, researcher, wouldn't fit into a university, I and mean, he's, he's kind of like we are, uh, Jan Hendrik Kropp. Have you ever had heard of him or seen his work? Yep. yep. Okay, yep. and Jan Hendrik studied still another researcher, back from the 30s and 40s. And one of her books was translated into English by Acres USA. And it's uh, Healthy Soils, Sick Soils, or Sick Soils, Healthy Soils, I'm not sure the order. But that's a really brilliant piece of work that goes into the mechanics of soil where they actually stained soil and dissected it like you would an organism. And they made some really interesting discoveries as to the internal structure of soil and what makes it tick. But so much of this work uh, was done by people that didn't have the tools we have. And well, what a uh, tragedy it is that these powerful tools we're using now are going into chemical agriculture instead of into understanding the biology and you know the, the intricate and really elegant systems that are at work. I mean, a lot of that even goes back to Stalin was on the same path. I mean... You know, when, when we landed in Ukraine there in January, you know, the first thing I saw when we got on the farms, every so many feet was a road, you know, four rows of trees. And, yep. You know, they, they, they've kept that in place since Stalin. And, you know, yes, everything was moldboard plowed there, but you had no snow blowing, no nothing. You know? That's right. Yep. But the neat part is, you know, with the war now, now all of a sudden they're figuring out how they can change a few th- minor things and get by with less now. So, so uh, Margaret Sakara wrote published the book "Healthy Soils, Sick Soils," and Jan Hendrik quoted a lot more work by Sakara uh, that he has used in in the advances he's made in no-till and in mulch-till, and it's. Something that would really be nice. Of course, Jan Hendrik uh, just published his book, but he can't find an American English language publisher. He's got it translated into English. And he kindly sent me a, co- a German copy of his book, which is a really great piece of work. Okay. Ed, Ed Borges has a message here. Hans, Jenny, Factors of Soil Formation, A System of Quantitative Pathology, 1941. Yes. <laughs> they knew things back then. <laughs> Not all of it was obsolete when well, the new ideas came along. You know, 2006, when I started playing with interceding corn, my research was uh, 1870s to 1890s. University of Tennessee had some of the best information. Yes. And, you know, how, how cool is it? The same things that worked back then work today. <laughs> it's the same world. <laughs> So another book that I discovered by accident was called Singing Valleys. And I think it was Dorothy Giles. It was called The Story of Corn. And that that was really interesting because it went back into the Native American cultures and traditions. Uh, Another book that I would recommend highly of the old ones is called Weeds, Guardians of the Soil by Kokenauer. Now, I've still, I've left out a whole bunch of these old books, but now I'm going to take you in a whole different direction. What happens when you abandon a heavily farmed field, really rich land, 
good yields. What would happen if you walked away from it weeds. and came back next year? What would grow there? Buttonweeds, ragweeds, water hemp. Yep, a lot of broad, a lot of annual weeds that are broadleaves. Yep. Now, what will and they're going to make seed so that you have probably three, four orders of magnitude more seeds on the ground at the end of that year than you had when you started. What grows the next year? Grasses. Yep, nothing that nothing that was there the year before, right? But we put down ten thousand times more seed than we had. Why isn't it growing? It's there to solve a problem. Yep. So all of these plants that grew changed the soil so that it was a different environment. And now a different group of plants were the best adapted species for that environment. And that's what grew. So what happens if we go five years? Shrubs and trees. Yep, you're, you're right. But more importantly, it's the pioneer trees, right? We start seeing the brambles. We start seeing sumac. There's a predictable order that'll happen. And it's each group of plants prepares the soil so that the next group of plants will follow it. And out here in the east, the first real big trees that we see after all this brushy stuff, and that starts around 10 years, is black walnuts. They seem to be an earlier group. And the oaks will come in after that. So there's an order. So, so Klaus, where does the cash crop fit into this sequence then? Well, it's, it's, a, it's a succession of species. So when we watch what happens when we do nothing, we're seeing what the soil will do left to itself. When we are farming, if we are good husbands of the soil, then we will, our inputs are going to make the soil be the best adapted, best environment for the crop that we're planting. And if we can create a circle out of that so that we have every year we're planting the crop that's best adapted for the environment we left, we can actually make it so that we come back around where we started. And then we have a farming system. And there's another book that I'll throw out, and you've probably heard of it, Farmers for 40 Centuries written about the farming systems that have persisted for 4,000 years. And they create that perfect circle where each crop prepares the way for the next one, which prepares the way for the next one. And pretty soon you end up back where you were. And for 4,000 years, that system has worked. Now that I'd say that stood the test of time. Uh, there is so, a system, go ahead. No, 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 go right ahead. There is a system that did not stand the test of time, and we read about it in Genesis. Where did Abraham come from? The city of Ur. And Ur was the center of huge wheat fields. They actually were pretty sure there was einkorn wheat, and it was a very vast, rich agricultural area. And after, a, I don't know how many years, but it was quite a long time, bad irrigation practices and bad farming practices started building up soil, salt in the soil. And the einkorn didn't grow well anymore, but they discovered that barley could grow in a higher salt environment. So they started shifting toward barley. This is an interesting 
cautionary tale for the genetic engineers who want to engineer crops that will grow in salty soils. Because after the barley wouldn't grow anymore, because they continued making the soil worse, not much of anything grew. And there was a program on TV once where they went back and they just found the city of Ur. And it's one of the most desolate places where almost no life at all exists to this day. So there was an example of a failed agricultural system. And Abraham and family were told, you get out of there because that's gonna, it's not gonna fail. It's not gonna survive, it's gonna fail where you are. And quite often as the food gets short, you start getting political instability and revolution and other problems. So that, that those are the two extremes. Uh, to me so so klaus i i totally understand what you you just described but talk to us more about in detail the farming practices is this no-till is this tillage what 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 are you talking about or does it matter i think it matters where you are locally and what your conditions are and as conditions change we need to change with them and you know it's really hard for me to explain this without uh, saying that this is an intelligent system. There's an intelligent design at work in this system. And if we think it's a random system, nothing we look at is going to make sense because this is, this is like a very finely engineered machine. Uh, for instance, when we have a flush of weeds coming, especially in one spot in the field, that flush of weeds is generally there because of a certain condition that, that's there. And they were actually, um, they're there because somehow they were triggered to come out of dormancy and grow because of the environmental cues that were there. Until the conditions were right, they just laid there. They could lay there for 200 years. Soon as what they were, what they're good for is needed, they grow. And I've had example after example of that. And this, this goes into the, this is the fun stuff. And this is where, Cornell University has actually been a huge help to us of figuring out the science of what's going on. So I'll, I'm going to give you an example. When we first started growing dryable beans, it was like printing our own money. And they, they were valuable and they yielded like crazy. But there hadn't been any dry beans on our farm in a long time. After about three cycles, our yields were going to pot. The roots were rotting off. And I said, this must be this new variety is garbage. It wasn't the new variety. We had been growing and we were rotating. Problem is, and I, I finally found a professor at Cornell who explained it to me. He said, yeah, you're rotating. You're rotating from one host of these, this set of problems to another host of the same set of problems to another host of the same set of problems. And he asked a really clever question when he was dealing with this problem on other farms. He asked, what would happen if we planted a different crop ahead of, this, ahead of our dry beans? And he made a random blah. He took a field that was really infested with this whole complex of rots where you couldn't grow dry beans anymore. He planted 22 different crops in a random block. So three different replications. And they were all different, all the different species he could think of. And then he plowed it and he planted dry beans again. And he looked at the roots and some of the plots were actually worse. Some of them were better. And two, two of the crops that he had experimented with had almost completely cleaned the soil of the root disease. And those two crops were interesting. One of them was yellow mustard and the other one was buckwheat. 
two totally different modes of action. Now, I don't know how much you know about yellow mustard, but it's got glucosinolates in it. That's why it's sharp when you taste it. And there's an enzyme in the leaf. And if you, uh, just, if you damage the leaf, that enzyme comes in contact with the glucosinolate molecule and it gives off a gas that fumigates the soil. And that gas not only kills the fungi that were causing the root rot, it also kills the nematodes that we weren't paying attention to that were in there eating holes in the roots so that the fungi could attack them. And I described this at a meeting in Aberdeen, South Dakota once, and a farmer came up and said, you know, you just explained something to me that's been bugging me for years. I had this field that always had mustard. And finally, I planted oats in it, and it was solid mustard. And I got so mad, I plowed it under. And I've never seen mustard in that field again since. <laughs> so whatever was causing the mustard to be there, it worked its way out of a job. Now, the buckwheat is a completely different mode of action. The buckwheat has, and every one of these plants has a whole group of species that grow around the roots that are fed by the, they're recruited by the plant and then fed exudates that will nourish that group of species. One of those species in the buckwheat root system gives off an enzyme called chitinase. Now chitin is the cell wall of these pathogenic fungi. It's the cell wall of the nematodes. And these bugs are running around basically hunting down the pathogens and eating them for lunch. And buckwheat has a whole bunch of other characteristics. It gives off bicarbonate out of the roots, which means it can break down the bonds between aluminum and phosphorus. In fact, we had a, we had a college class, this was in Coble Skill at the two-year school, where the professor was really sharp. He was teaching us how to test for phosphorus, and he was having fun with us. He found a sample of soil that would test zero. And he was watching us all get frustrated. And some of the groups were thinking about, let's cheat. Let's come up with some results because we weren't getting any results. And finally, he came clean and said, what happened? And he said, now, how would you get a crop to grow in this field? And of course, everyone said, put on phosphate. And he said, that might work, but it's not the best answer. He said, grow buckwheat. Buckwheat will break down the bonds that are tying up that phosphorus and leave, more, leave enough behind so the next crop can thrive there too. Uh, another thing that buckwheat does that the old farmers here taught me was that if you grow a crop, if you have a field that's overrun with quackgrass, you grow one crop of buckwheat and the quackgrass is gone for years after. Almost like magic. It's not magic, but it's, it's uh, really high science. What, what about foxtail, Klaus? How do you get rid of that one? Foxtail is one that stumped me for years, and I have to admit, I was at an acres meeting and showed a picture that looked like a sprayer skip, where I ran out of gypsum on one side of the field, and where I ran out of gypsum, the foxtail was there, and the rest of the field was clean. And I told people, if you got foxtail, put on gypsum. I was wrong. I was only, only partially right. As near as I can tell, and this is guesswork, but I'm pretty sure I'm right, foxtail is growing there because the soil can't breathe. It's got bad gas exchange at the surface. It doesn't make any difference why it can't breathe. When you have that bad gas exchange, the foxtail and other summer grasses are going to be stimulated to come out of dormancy and to grow. And of course they fix that situation too, if we don't go back and make the soil be just like it was before. Problem is we tend to go back and do the same thing again and then we don't get rid of the weeds. We don't let them, work their, we don't let them do their job and work their way out of a job. But what 
we saw was even sandy open soil, if we had a lot of rain, we'd have foxtail the next year because it was struggling for air. It was building up CO2, it was building up the products that you get when you can't breathe and it was short of oxygen. And I think what that's telling us is that this soil is very tight in the surface and the gas can't get in and out. And it's trying to fix it. Now, when you say surface, what do you, I mean, what are you, are you talking one inch down or you mean really the surface? One to two inch, well, in the top inch. Top inch. Yeah. There are different things that indicate tightness further down. And one of, here's another one that we worked out with help of the university. Have you ever had a problem with Canada thistle? Yes, sir. Okay, so Canada thistle is very predictable. In New York, the first rotation, quote unquote, that we learned to use on organic farms was corn, Benton 81 soybeans, followed by winter wheat or spelt, seeded to clover. You plow the clover down the next spring and plant corn. And within about six to eight years, that wheat or spelt is going to be choking with Canada thistle and maybe south thistle, but these deep-rooted perennial weeds. It happened on every farm that was doing it. And it happened on the university farm at exactly the same point. And that we, there was a lot of hand-wringing. How do we get rid of this thing? This is a tough weed. It's got huge reserves. You know, you can tear the top off and it's got plenty to come right back. In fact, there's an old saying, I don't know if you have it in the Midwest, in New York, that they used to say, cut them in May, they'll be back in a day. Cut them in June, they'll be back soon. But cut them in July and tell them goodbye. The reason they said that was that in July they bloomed. When they're blooming, the roots are the smallest mass they're going to be. And those big roots have shrunk a little bit and they're letting air into the subsoil. There's an organism in the root system of the Canada thistle that can only survive an anaerobic subsoil. And the Canada thistle needs that organism to survive. So it's anaerobic subsoil conditions are driving that. And it's trying to fix it for us except we keep going back and doing the same thing that made it grow. That, uh, why Rick thinks there, that'll ties in with a question Jeremy Toes has. I had trouble on 18 acre area of a field, no tile, it's medium clay soil, seems to really hold on to water and stays saturated. Last fall, rye wouldn't even survive. It was run over by foxtail last year. Over winter it grew annual ryegrass, bluegrass, chickweed, have used a thousand pounds of gypsum, gypsum every other year, a couple times. I'm organic and use cover crops. Dry beans were a loss due to foxtail last year. What can I do to help that soil? That's a really good question. I've been there. Uh, what I think what I would start with is let's look at the mix of weeds. What kind of plants are they? And try to grow a crop that is as similar to the group of weeds as possible. So I have found that I can grow a sorghum or sorghum sudan on ground that likes foxtail. And actually the sorghum, sorghum sudan does some of the same benefits to the soil that the foxtail does. If we could grow millet, 
millet is almost the same species as foxtail. So if that soil wants to grow foxtail, it'll love to grow millet. So kind of go with the flow. And that way we actually get the harvest the benefit of that crop. And that way we have to start taking cues from the soil as to what it wants to do. It's, uh, if you'll bear with me, this, this whole idea of intelligent design comes through. If we can observe what's going on, we can see that the soil has all these systems in it that are there to fix things that go wrong. And if we can take our cues from the weeds, it'll give us kind of a hint as to what we can do that'll work. And one of the farmers I talked with on this said, you know, it's a lot like martial arts where if you take somebody else's motion and redirect it slightly, you're, you're actually benefiting from their aggressive motion by redirecting it slightly to do what you want to do. This is kind of taking the soil's energy and the soil, what the soil is trying to do and redirecting it, you know, in a way that, and of course, then, then we run into the rotation effect where each of these crops prepares the soil so something else will grow afterwards. The problem is if I decide I want to grow something that the soil is just not wanting to grow, I'm banging my head into the wall. I kind of need to do what it wants to do. What crop have you instituted uh, to avoid the thistle year then? So, okay, back, to, yeah, I'm skipping around too fast. So back to the Cornell thistle problem. Uh, I tried something that uh, our weed scientist told me was crazy. He said that this will never work. Just doing one different crop is gonna have no effect on these deep reserves. And at the end of the year, the technician gave us the report and he said, well, we're rid of the perennial weeds now. We can go back to our old rotation. We added, after the, after the spelt, we put in winter barley. And that was kind of an accidental piece of good luck. The reason I put the winter barley in is because the, the mowing the uh, thistle at the right stage, that the winter barley is harvested right when you want to mow the thistle. But it also was off early enough to double crop. So when we mowed the thistle, we subsoiled, which I've learned afterwards we probably didn't need to do because the thistle was already doing the subsoiling. And we planted buckwheat. We actually got a second crop of buckwheat after the uh, barley. And then after that, we went back to another winter grain, seeded to clover, and back to corn, thistle was gone. And it was so, almost too easy. <laughs> so Klaus, would this same uh, rationale of thinking work with like uh, a perennial uh, species that we don't don't want in our system, but it's in there like say chicory. Does that same theory work there then? Because it's a deep taproot, reserves all that. I think it does. I, I think these general principles are pretty universal. The problem is that we have to learn how to use them locally. You know to benefit from them, and, and that, that's why all farming is local. You know, yeah, yeah, all over. yeah. Your con your contacts. Yeah, I get that right. And right. so we've, uh, I can give you a really wild example from uh, across the country of where adding one new species eliminated a major pest. And that's in the Salinas Valley of California. They grow romaine lettuce. 
and it's a really valuable crop and it gets an aphid in it that makes the heart slimy, makes it totally unmarketable. They found out that if you have sweet alyssum next to the lettuce, the lettuce won't have the aphid. And they've, then they asked, well, how little sweet alyssum can we plant? And they found out 44 sweet alyssum flowers on an acre will eliminate that aphid from the field. So that became the trap crop then? Is that what we would call that? I'm not sure what the motive action was. It's just the, but they found out that, you know, if you have those two crops beside each other, you don't have that pest. And my guess is it may be a host for a beneficial that, you know, that somehow it, it could even be that the biology of the insects is such that has taken away the reason for that aphid to be in the system. But the, the principle though is the same, that finding the right new species and introducing it to the system eliminated the pest. I'm gonna shift gears on you one more time. And this is to a weed that almost drove me crazy when we started. And we had a velvet leaf on our farm. In the last years that we farmed chemically, the velvet leaf got so that no, no combination of chemicals worked anymore. And part of the reason was it could come up in July and still get ripe. And if we disturbed the soil after we sprayed, it would come up out of that disturbed soil because we broke the band of the herbicide. And I remember it being sticking up out of the top of the cornfields. And when we went to organic, I wondered where it's really bad. Will this pest prevent us from being able to farm organically? And there was one spot, it was the barnyard of an old dairy that used to be there where I harvested the first organic crop with a mower. It just, there was no corn there. It was all velvet leaf. The next time we came to corn, three years later, I congratulated myself for being a lot better at weeding and cultivating because we actually got a crop, even though it was full of, it still was pretty full of velvet leaf. I wasn't noticing this, but two more cycles forward, the velvet leaf wasn't getting as tall anymore. It wasn't just that we were doing a better, we were getting better control of it. It was also not growing as good. And that's the part I wasn't seeing. We had a field day. And at the field day, we noticed that the leaves on that velvet leaf were turning yellow. And then they turned black. And then they fell off. In fact, by the end of the year, they were all dead. And we found velvet leaf anthracnose. We identified the disease that was causing that. And I thought, boy, I found a way to get rich. We're gonna take these spores and we're gonna sell them to farmers to get rid of their velvet leaf. And I brought my idea to my friend at Cornell, Tony DiTomaso, and Tony told me, yeah, you're right. This, is, this disease really kills these, this velvet leaf for you, but pointed across the road and said, your, your idea, in order to make your idea work, explain to me why that velvet leaf has the disease and it's not being hurt. Conventional farmer across the road that had the same disease, same problem, but the velvet leaf wasn't dying. It was thriving. Well, then uh, a graduate student who was working on the program discovered we also had a virus. And that virus was uh, called Albutian yellows. And I got thinking, well, maybe we just need the virus and the fungus to kill the velvet leaf. And then almost as quick, the same graduate student discovered we had white flies that were vectoring the disease. In fact, that field day, there was a conventional agronomist there and he said, come here, look at this. He said, you aren't gonna have a crop in a week. There's so many white flies. Until we looked and the white flies were all over the velvet leaf, but they weren't touching the crop. 
I still had it backwards. I thought the velvet leaf was sick because it had two diseases, it had a virus, a fungus, and an insect. That's not what was going on. It had the virus, the fungus, and the insect because it was sick. It was not fit for the environment that was in that field. It was a very unfit species. And we noticed when we went to pull the velvet leaf, it had almost no roots on it. That was another sign that it was sick. We don't even care if we see velvet leaf anymore because we know it's not going to come. It's not, it's, it might grow, but it'll die. So it's that unfit in our system. And I think that really illustrates this whole idea of setting, of building the best possible environment for the species that you're going to be growing as your crop. Because the, the reverse of it is true too, having a terrible environment for the species you want to get rid of. Uh, something my son noticed first, this is a, another application, completely different mode of action. It's amazing how, how diverse nature is and how things work. We found that if we grow Triticale and winter peas as a forage and then harvest it in early, late May, early June, you know, as a, as a dairy forage, we get about three to four weeks with almost no weeds afterwards. We were able to plant edible dry beans, they're black turtle soup beans. And there were just no weeds, no weeds, no weeds. And I kept looking, do I need to cultivate these yet? No, I don't need to. And by the time, by the time there were any weeds that I needed to cultivate, those beans were six, eight inches tall, you know, and pretty well established. And I actually had people looking at him saying, what'd you do here? How, how come there's no weeds? Well, we found out that it repeated, that the effect of having the triticale and winter peas on the field over winter was suppressing all germination of all weeds. That, that's a really powerful tool. Uh, now, Klaus, can you give us more specifics on that winter pea? Is there a certain variety we need to be looking at or just any... An Austrian winter pea? It was just an Austrian winter pea. And okay. a lot of people think Austrian winter peas are hard to get through the winter, that they winter kill easily. It's not the cold. They can tolerate really cold. They can't tolerate desiccation. If you have a wind, especially after they break dormancy in the spring and they're starting to grow again, if the ground freezes and you get a wind, it can devastate them. And I had that once. And I had half a field. I was trying to figure out, should I have barley in here as a scaffold to help hold them up or am I better off growing straight winter peas? That wind came the next morning. I had 90% stand burn back on the straight winter peas. And the ones that were mixed with barley had zero damage. It was wind protection. And now we've got winter pea varieties other than the Austrian that are yellow and green that could be used for food grid. And I think this is, a, this is a really exciting possibility for crops because the Midwest is full of weeds and pests that bother spring planted crops. How many weeds and pests do you have out there that bother winter planted crops, fall planted crops? You get a free ride. You know, that, and there's another principle of controlling weeds is don't give them the same environment twice. Keep them, you know, keep them on the defensive. Cultural. <clears throat> What's that? Cultural practices. That's exactly right. Those are cultural practices. And uh -huh. I, I think we've got so many opportunities right now, and this goes back to this feeding the world. We need to eat a more diverse diet. 
And I think the organic market gives us paying ways to sell this more diverse diet, which is needed on our fields to make our soil healthy. The more different crops we have in our bag of tricks, the more, the better systems we can put together to farm our land. And the need for outside inputs kind of goes away that these outside inputs, an awful lot of them are crutches that allow us to do something that nature is telling us to stop doing. It's kind of like the idiot light comes on on your car. If the goal is to get the light to turn off, we can put tape over it, we could clip the wires, or we could figure out why it's on. Long-term effect to figuring out why it's on and doing something about that might be the best solution. And I think one of the real downfalls of modern GMO farming is that not that there's something wrong with the tools of genetic engineering, it's that this whole technology is designed to enable continuing bad management that nature is telling us to stop doing. And if we can continue uh, with genetic tricks to, to, be, to enable this bad management, nature is still gonna have the last laugh. It's just the problem is gonna be a lot bigger when, when the next payday comes. And I think we're seeing that. How many, how many acres of corn needed to be sprayed with fungicide in August back in the 1970s? You know, these days, if they're not spraying with fungicide, they won't have a crop. Now, that's one, that's one of those changes that I was referring to that, you know, our, our assumptions were not predicting what we were seeing. Uh, I don't think assumptions are predicting that we should be having to spray these crops with fungicide. But it's kind of a scary thought of why are these corn plants so sick that they can't fight off diseases that they easily shrugged off years ago. What, you know, what else is going on? Well, so I think, I, I, I'm not saying this is something on purpose, but I think through the breeding of these genetics, we're losing the association with the mycorrhizal fungi. We definitely are. And, yeah, and because I, I see it, I don't have exact proof, but that salesman comes, brings the latest and greatest hybrid, and it just belly flops on our farm. It yep. will not work. That's right. And if you go back to the 70s, these corn varieties that were winning the national corn growers yields were varieties that would only perform in very healthy soil. They fell apart in poor soils, in, in sick soils. Today, what everybody's growing up and down the road is varieties that have been selected to grow in really sick soil. As long as you give them enough nitrate and enough fungicide and enough insecticide and enough other, every kind of side. Hydroponics. Yeah, that's right. Uh, I would say those hydroponic systems are really vulnerable to climate problems, though. In fact, there was a really interesting uh, um, conference that New York Times ran one time, talked food for the future, and they invited Molly John from who was dean at Madison to speak. And she talked about modern American agriculture being extremely productive, but that not being the same as being resilient. And the point she made was that there are several, it's like a stool with several legs and modern agriculture is dependent on these legs. And if you kick anyone out from under it, the whole system comes crashing down. And just incidentally, Molly was, uh, had the same graduate advisor and was in Cornell when my wife was there. So they were friends way back. It's really interesting how these long-term 
relationships are coinc seem like coincidences. But you've had some really good people at, at Madison. We've had some really good people at Cornell. And even though the university, we, we accuse the university of promoting these systems that we know aren't very good, there are other people in those universities that are really doing great things that are helping us. I think we're not looking in the soil close enough. I, I really think that this group of microbes that are in the root zones of our crops and of the weeds are doing a lot of things we're not even aware of. And I think another, another thing we need to be studying is what are the triggers that these dormant weed seeds are activated by? So a piece of Cornell research that was, was actually inspired by an experiment that uh, I was co-PI on. And that was, we noticed when you spread manure in the spring, we had a lot more weeds in our corn than if we spread that manure the summer before on the cover crop. And the other thing we noticed was if we spread more manure than what was needed for the phosphorus that the crop that gave us optimum yield, we got a lot more weeds. In fact, in this experiment, we had some charts that showed, we were trying to, we were asking the question of how much fertile, how much compost or how much manure or how much fertilizer does an organic crop do best at? You know, what, what is our best rate? We wanted to calibrate our fertility practices according to research. What we saw was that the corn yields topped out, if you said at one X rate, we hadn't topped out the weed yields yet, we went to 3x, 4x, and we never found out where the top weed yield was. So the more we pushed the manure beyond what the crop needed, the more weeds we had. But worse yet, if we put that manure on in the spring, we had a lot more weeds than if we put it on the summer before on a cover crop. And Chuck Moeller, who sadly has passed away, he just published a book that's one of the best weed books out there great reference book. I, I should be able to give you the title, but I can't think of it right now. I think it's, there's probably a copy laying behind me. But he uh, started asking, what is it about the manure that is making those weeds come? And he, zeroed it, he narrowed it down to there is a form of phosphorus in manure that is causing certain classes of weeds, particularly the Palmer amaranth, the red root pigweed, and that whole family of weeds were responding to this form of phosphorus. And in his experiments in the greenhouse, he did some proxies. He used bone phosphate and he used uh, other set and the, those phosphates were not causing that weed growth. But the manure, this particular one form of phosphorus in the manure, which he sadly never finished his work to identify that form of phosphorus, was taking the weed seeds that were in the soil and bringing them out of dormancy and also making them grow a lot faster than they normally would have. It was almost like that magic grow juice that we wanted. And it was, it was just that one form of phosphorus. So it's not the nitrates, it's uh The nitrates bring on a different group, but this, this, particular, this particular group of weeds that we were having trouble with, and it, was, it also included, uh, velvet leaf was another one, but the valve leaf ran into these other biological problems, so it's really not an issue anymore. But when you think about the Palmer amaranth and the problems that it's causing with resistance, now I've got a suspicion here, and I need to frame this as my wild guess because I don't have any research to back it up. 
if you looked at the, you've all heard of the harmful algal bloom situation, especially in Lake Erie. And it's the phosphates coming out of the tile. Well, if you went back to the 70s, the phosphorus level was a lot higher, but we didn't have those harmful algal blooms. And they've identified what Ohio State called DRP, dissolved reactive phosphate. And professors in the United in New York are calling it SRP, and they're wasting time arguing about whether it ought to be called DRP or SRP and not asking why have we got it. But there was work done in Ohio that was immediately shut down when the initial results came out that showed if you're using glyphosate, it's changing the phosphorus in the soil and it's creating the form of phosphorus that is causing the algal bloom. My suspicion is that maybe this is that form of phosphorus that Dr. Moeller was looking for. Well, you know, isn't, maybe... <laughs> there, isn't there some of that that has relation to the uh, sulfur in the air too? Since we've cleaned up the yeah. air? That, that's having some real strong chemical, making some strong chemical changes. Yeah, there, there's actually some of the algae blooms are actually coming out of the timbers. Yeah. The, sulf, the sulfur's making the reactions in the timbers. Sulfur actually makes the phosphorus more soluble. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think general, in general, phosphorus can cause this, but this, this particular form of phosphorus yep. is just really specifically bad. Now, is that Joel Nestor, I think? There's an agronomist in, uh, in the Lake Erie there that's done a lot of work on that. I remember talking with him. Yeah, well, what I was told was that this work was shut down. Yep. And he was told not to publish, not to continue the work. You're all done. Yep. Because he was, he was connecting use of glyphosate with phosphorus taking that form and leaching into the lake. So <laughs> we're, we're using a very powerful selective agent when we're using uh, glyphosate because it's an antibiotic yeah. and it's changing the balance of life in the soil and having all kinds of effects. Hmm. So I'm, I'm probably talking too much and you've had some questions you wanted to get to. No, we, we've been, we've been kind of answering them as we, we go. Okay. I mean, there, there's a few comments on there. I mean, I see Rick just jumped back on, but uh, I mean, how are you doing on time? We don't want to overstay oh, welcome with you. And uh, I, I get excited about these things. Oh, I, I'm, I'm just enjoying it. I mean, I, I've got questions up the up the wazoo here yet. So I mean, I'm, just, I'm I mean, I probably probably one of the best ones I got yet is uh, Jan Hendrik. What yeah. does tillage do without tillage? Okay, well, how does he do it without tillage? Yes, tillage without tillage. Well, I think you can do that with synthetic nitrate. Because what the re one of the questions that I have been putting out that I'd like to see a discussion on among farmers is why do we till? You know, what are the benefits of tillage? Because we wouldn't be doing it. It's a, it's a very expensive process, both in terms of labor, especially tillage started when we had horses. You know, that was very difficult work. So we wouldn't have been doing it if it didn't give us a benefit. Now, the first and most obvious benefit is obviously to, is to kill weeds. 
But I think the more important one is that tillage adds oxygen and, and starts the mineralization of nitrogen. It starts a breakdown of organic material, which releases nitrogen. Uh, tillage also opens up the soil and mixes it. But if we can accomplish, if we could list all the things that tillage does and find ways to do it without tilling, we're way ahead. And I, I think defining the benefits of tillage and the negative effects of tillage would be a really good exercise to do for no-till. Because we can't justify tilling if we can find a different way to do, to accomplish each of those benefits. I'm finding some really interesting benefits of not tilling, and especially with winter grains. If we can have a stubble of a previous year's crop standing up, it's protecting, it's a wind block. It's creating a microclimate right next to the soil, protecting the crop from desiccation, catching snow, you know, not, not just preventing erosion. And it, I think it's also creating a, a warm zone next to the ground. But I, th I really think we're, there's an opportunity here in defining all of these, you know, defining the reasons we tell. And Jan Hendrick started doing that. Yeah. In fact, one, one of his exercises is to look at a soil and predict whether he calls it, whether you have the right to no-till. He said, if it's healthy enough and in the right condition, he will say, yes, you can no-till this soil and have no reduction in yield. But the way he's supplying nitrogen is by taking chopped grass or chopped clover and putting it on top as a mulch, knowing that it's going to break down and release nitrogen in sync with the needs of the crop. And I think the really big reason that we tell if we're not using synthetic nitrogen is that we're timing the mineralization of that nitrogen to have it come and come loose in, in sync with when the crop needs it. That's just been my observation. And one of the problems of fall plowing legumes ahead of corn is the nitrogen's all mineralized and gone before the corn ever uses it. <clears throat> That's a double loss. We've got the cost of the tillage and then we've done damage instead of done any benefit to ourselves. So there, you know, that, that's just so, a whole different area. So, so Klaus, what about then in the spring, then doing what would be called green manuring in the spring? That you mean for uh, the cover crop? Yeah, like a legume cover crop that you, uh, you, you try to work in the top two inches and green manure that. Shallow incorporate. Yeah, I, I, that's a lot, of, lot like what Jan Hendrick is doing by just chopping that, you know, and mulching with it. And that really, that breaks it down fast. I mean, that gives you that nitrogen right when you want it. And another thing back to genetics is our corn genetics has been changed. If you take the old varieties that needed healthy soil, they could wait for their nitrogen and phosphorus. You know, you could have, they could be in a funk for a while. And as long as the nitrogen became available, you're okay. These new varieties can't have a bad day. They've got to have nitrogen up front right now, every day. And that's been a problem on organic farms because it forces us to do a little more aggressive tillage in a lot of cases to break down that organic matter and have the nitrogen available sooner so that we don't lose yield potential. Uh, another thing tillage is doing, and it's not the same on all soils. This is, we're in a special situation here where we can see it. Uh, New York has soils that we say are addicted to tillage. 
and they tend to be our high silt soils. They tend to be water formed soils. So our farm is over 50% silt. And you can find that silt if you do, uh, if you were to take the soil and dig down a foot and take one inch increments in a sifter, what you'll find is that there's an increase in silt at the four inch layer, which is your secondary tillage layer, a big increase in percent silt. And then at the bottom of your primary tillage layer, you'll find another big spike in silt. And that silt's actually plugging your capillaries. What's happening is that, think about mud puddles. What, what is suspended in water in a mud puddle? It's generally the silt particles. The clay is sticky and very small. It's not gonna go into suspension as easy, a little clay might. And the sand is big and the water goes through it. But the silt will go into suspension and make the soil muddy. So if you get a, a field that's all worked up nice and you get a violent pounding rain and it's got that shiny look on top, you know nothing, you know that crop's not gonna do very good, right? I mean, that shiny look is something that really makes you sick to look at. Maybe you all know till and never have that problem, but we sure see it around here. That shininess is actually silt depositing right on the surface. It is totally asphyxiating all the life in the soil. In fact, we had a speaker once where the farmers were asking, why are these crops just falling apart when you have that kind of a rain and you have that shiny top? And the speaker answered it by saying, how long can you live without food? And then he said, how long can you live without water? And then he asked, how long can you live without air? And he said, that's what's happening to your soil life when you've got that layer there. But the next step, you don't see as much. And that's if the water starts going down into the soil, carrying the silt, what happens when it when there's a texture change and the water slows down and how fast it's moving. Some of that silt deposits out. And that's what we're finding when we do the, the soil sieving. And what's a tillage addicted soil is a very high silt soil where the silt's not tied tightly enough in stable aggregates. And these guys are saying, well, we need to get some of that really dead stuff down there on top and mix it with the rest. Well, what they're doing is they're taking that same silt that just did all the damage the year before, putting it all back on top where it'll seal off and kill the life in the soil and then carry down through and end up back where it was. And when it seals your soil capillaries, uh, the roots don't go through very good. It makes the ground hard as concrete. And we get these layers that you find with a penetrometer where once you get through that layer, the penetrometer falls. But that layer is enough to stop root movement. It's enough to stop water movement, both up and down. In fact, that, that tillage layer, we used to call it a plow pan, which never made sense to me. Why would having a tire down in the furrow every three or four furrows give you a uniform hard pan? That just never made sense to me. But having that depth of horizontal tillage being where the texture changes and all the silt ends up cementing everything shut, that does make sense. And that hard layer is really terrible for what's underneath because you just, the water doesn't go down through and it doesn't come up through. And of course the air has trouble going down through and up through. And when we've had no-till fail in our county, our region has this soil group uh, and we've seen dozens of farmers go bankrupt 
by being, they'd have no-till that worked really good two or three years in a row when it was wet. And then you get a severe drought and their crops just totally tank. And it's because in the wet years, that silt was still moving through the old damaged soil and causing those layers. And then when it dried up, the roots couldn't go through it and the water wasn't available. Now, just understanding so, that can help us manage it. So, Klaus, then you're talking about no tillage with no cover crops, correct? Exactly right. The cover crops are actually actively feeding microbes that are rebuilding those stable aggregates. Okay. Yeah. And the farmers here who are successfully no tilling are all using cover crops or they're not successful. Now, there's, there are soils where this works without cover crops if you have enough chemicals and that's where they don't have the, the silt situation quite as bad as we do. So we're, we're in a really difficult soil for that. Okay, so I wanna make sure I understand here. So if you are in a tillage system that say is tilling four inches deep, mm -hmm. you're creating this at that four inch zone, that level. Right. Okay. Let's now move to vertical tillage, uh, two inches deep. That same thing is occurring now, just at two inches deep. Is that correct? Yes, but vertical tillage as opposed to horizontal is not the same thing. You're not doing the same kind of damage. Vertical tillage will actually help reopen the soil if you can get roots to follow that vertical, because you're not, you're not giving a horizontal cut. In fact, you can totally screw up the soil if you, if you have this hard layer and you blow it apart with like a parabolic subsoiler. I've seen soils that the water would not go down and wouldn't come up because those big blocks, um, there's no capillaries. Yeah. And, and you think we've loosened them up, but the only way water can go down off them is to come to saturation and then drip off. If you think about a paper towel, if you stick it in water, water moves across. If you tear it, it'll come to the tear and it has to go across or it'll have to drip. That's kind of what we've done with the soil, with this intensive tillage, where if you put a slot down, it'll follow that slot. So a slot every 30 inches will, will give you an opening where you've got water that can come along that surface that you've made in the slot. And what I've found is if we make that slot, we are committing a crime if we don't fill that slot with roots as fast as possible. So there was another crop that Sakara mentioned. Sakara described this silt migration way back in Austria. I had discovered it through some, through Jim Martindale actually. Jim Martindale was one of the guys that had discovered it here. I don't know if you're familiar with him out in Indiana. Uh, there's a lot of things I disagree with Jim on, but Jim got that one exactly right. So there's things that, you know, we all have parts of the, where we get cl closer than others and I could be wrong on a lot of what I'm saying. But with that, um, another thing Sakara talked about was the peasant farmers in Europe, when they grew root crops, would always plant canola or rape, rapeseed ahead of the root crops because the rapeseed would loosen the soil and aggregate it to a much deeper depth than any other crop they could grow ahead of the root crop. And they would get a lot nicer root crops and a lot bigger. Like the carrots would go down deeper, the beets would go down, and they didn't misform. And for some reason, the roots of, uh, and it could be forage rape, it can be canola, it can be any of, any of this species, will form beautiful big aggregates 
and they'll send roots down that are about the size of pencil. And we've been, we've been experimenting with running a subsoiler through the clover when we have a clover cover crop like in spelt or wheat and then seeding rows of forage rape right in the slot. And in 45 days, we had 12 inches of root and almost perfect aggregation all the way to the bottom. And I think that would, that's one of those things that I would refer to that there's no need to till if you've got that situation because nature just did it. You know, and we've got that nice slot and we're holding it open and aggregating it. I've also, uh, when we've used a subsoiler that did minimal disturbance, when we had severe drought, seen the moisture come all the way to the surface within hours. Where we broke that layer where the capillaries were plugged and gave the moisture a root and it would suddenly be to the top. And if we had straw mulch on top, that moisture would come right up under the straw and build up and start wetting the whole, the whole area. That, that's just observations I've made. And I think Sakara is really, uh, is worth studying because of the, the work that Sakara did on how soil, how silt moves. Sakara described two processes, microerosion and macroerosion. Microerosion was the soil with the mud in it going down, the, down into the capillaries and actually damaging the life in the, you know, physically abrading those structures. And then saying once the micro erosion has gotten to the point where the soil is not managing water correctly, then you get macro erosion, which is running off the top. And being able to store large quantities of water is one of those functions of a healthy soil. And this forage rape crop was one of the crops that Sakara observed could really increase the ability of soil to rapidly suck in and store large amounts of water and then return them to become available to the next crop. So I like the term biotillage. You know, worms do biotillage. Roots can do biotillage, but we have to find the right ones. You know, this goes back to this right sequence of crops that we need to use. That ties into, uh, we got Jake Rowland has a question here. What would you say is the most important factor to creating a suitable soil environment for so healthy plants, biology, aerobic environment, aeration, quitting chemical, synthetic application diversity. That would be the right sequence of crops. I, I think there's absolutely nothing, and, and that's gonna not be a, a textbook or a recipe. Like, you know, it'll be the sequence. Site specific too. Right, it'll be the sequence that's right for that situation and even as the climate changes that sequence is going to adjust and I think the farmer makes a difference yep. you know a farmer leaves an imprint on that soil just by the type of decisions we make yep. uh, curveball I was going to throw at you here and I want to make sure I tell you I'm very impressed with it is uh, your involvement with uh, Japanese knapweed, Pam Barone, and I'll throw this out there at the same time, trace genomics involvement. Oh, well, trace genomics, I was really excited about, but I haven't heard anything from them in a long time. I think they were bought by, they were taken over by another company. Uh, but I really see trace genomics as a technology, trace genomics 
using a technology that has tremendous potential because it's it's not there are too many species in the soil for us to really one by one understand them. And the idea in trace genomics is they're looking at genes yep. and the function of the genes. And they're actually able to predict with a fair amount of accuracy whether you've got a disease-prone soil or a non-disease-prone soil. But I think there's a I think that's only scratching the beginning of what we could be doing. This this is a way of looking at the soil life in a very different way. I think there's potential there for building soil carbon. Yeah, I was I was working with some company. They were doing D, DNA sequencing. Yes. And- they, they kept over-promising, under-delivering, and uh, we'll have that next time we talk to you. Yeah, well, I, I don't think we can do it that way. I think we need to have a little more humility yeah. <laughs> in science. But yeah. uh, at the same time, we've got a very powerful tool there that we need to learn how to use. I, I think there's if we could understand the pathways that control dormancy, yeah. You imagine the power that would have in terms of our weed control if instead of trying to kill these weeds, we could actually manage whether they're going to be there or not. Well, I, I was going to mention that earlier when you were talking about the seed bank. I mean, as we last year, as we were getting ready to test one of the things I think we're supposed to have access to this year, they did a, a bioanalysis of one of our organic fields and... I want to say it was 2 million seeds per square foot Mm -hmm. we have. Yeah, (laughs) I can believe that. Last time I dug around in that soil, I can't see a seed. (laughs) (laughs) It's actually quite the job to sit there with a microscope and figure out, is this a particle of soil or is this a seed? And then what kind of seed is it? (laughs) Yeah, and it's, you know, and and I I just, I, I can't wait. You know, I hope that technology gets out. You know, it's supposed to be on our combine this summer, and then next year, hopefully, we have it out in the field, burning the weeds actually out in the field. And uh, so there, there was another observation in Dr. Adamapa's work, and that was deep shading. And that one's kind of common sense. If you've got really deep shading, the weed seed bank's going to go into a deep dormancy because there's there is no point in trying to grow when there's no light up there. Yep. And another question is, why don't spring weeds come in the fall? How do they know what time of year it is? Well, there's the angle of the sun and the, and the uh, colors of the light are, are cues. And they're somehow working into the triggers inside of these seeds. It's not just moisture and warmth. There's, there's other triggers. And if we could just even begin to manage those triggers. There was a term I found in a German paper uh, called Keimfähigkeit, and that's that was re- Keim is germinate, you know, capacity. Yep. But th- there were different words they used for different states of dormancy. You know, Keimfähig would mean German germination ready. Yep. You know, then if you have disturbance, you get germination, but you still need that last step of disturbance. And that, that's another factor that I've observed when, when we're doing tillage, we're bringing out a flush of weeds. In fact, when we're killing weeds with a weeder, we're bringing on the next flush. We need to be aware of that. And I think a lot of us are, if we're using full tillage and we're weeding, we tend to pull the trigger too soon. We're going out there and weeding before we've got a lot of weeds ready to at the stage where we can control them, but we're bringing on the next flush so that next flush is going to come when we have trouble controlling it. 
Uh, that that kind of coincides with one of the texts I got here while we're sitting here talking. How come your roller is working so much better than another guy's? Well, it's patience. You know, our cereal rye is just barely starting to shed pollen today. Yes. And, so you're, you're seeing that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, everybody else says, oh, God, we need to get rolling. We need to get rolling. It's like, no. No vacation <laughs> a day or two yet. Uh-huh. Yeah, that's and, right. You know, it, it is no hurry. And, uh, but, uh, you know, that, that brings up that we're, we're going to go way back to the top of my list. Now let's, let's talk some of the tools you use in your operation and that, and, uh, you know, what, what are you using for tools and stuff like that? Well, uh, I love iron. So I, I've got a list of probably everything. <laughs> uh, we do have a crimper. Uh, we've got, uh, Peter just got a stack fold planner, which he wanted to have it so that the GPS, and he's got our GPS RTK with our own correction signal. And if I can be off the row sometimes all the way across the field and not know it with a cultivator set really tight because it's that accurate. But he loves technology. So he's able to plant that straight and that accurate. And then he's got cameras for when we're cultivating that zero in on the row. And we'll lock the cultivator dead on on the on your rows to stay centered. Uh, we do have we use European moldboards. Uh, the, there is nothing worse for the soil than an American moldboard. In fact, the Cavernalin plow, which is made in Norway, they had to offer it with what they called an Iowa bottom. The Iowa bottom made that plow into a soil destroyer. But that's what the farmers in Iowa demanded. The European moldboard does not invert fully. The very bottom of the soil, it only turns at 90 degrees. And as you get closer to the surface, it turns it more and more. And what you end up with is a layer of soil and a layer of organic material, a layer of soil, all the way to the surface that create wicks. So that when we're plowing, we're not trying to invert. And the talk in the coffee shop about what a nice clean job of plowing I did is stupid because that's a poor job as far as the soil is concerned. You know, that's so when we plow, we use that and we've gone to a, a power harrow, which is only tilling the top that we need for the seed, nothing more. So a good job of plowing and power harrowing, we're using probably only 60% of the fuel we used to use when we did it with conventional American tillage. But you can only, we only do that if there's a justification. Most of the crops don't need that kind of progressive tillage. Uh, we do a lot of frost seeding. I, when I seed yellow mustard, which we use for controlling some of these root diseases, uh, we just throw it on top, it'll grow. <laughs> no reason to do any more. Uh, one of the most interesting things that we've had is experimenting with how long can you go without tilling. And we've had really good luck after barley with BMR sorghum sedan. When that BMR sorghum sedan is cut at the right time, you can no-till rye into it. And the sorghum sedan will actually act there as a windbreak and help the rye. Uh, what we find when that happens is we get, and especially if the fertility is high, we get uh, chickweed and dead nettle. Now, most of the conventional farmers go nuts and spray it all with Roundup. And I'd always like to tell them, why don't you do a little control and leave a strip where you don't do it? It'll look just like where you sprayed it because it's all done growing before your crop comes. And that stuff is there over winter doing us a favor. 
And I've seen it. I've actually seen no-till spring wheat into a field that was heavily, just totally covered with chickweed and henbit. And it comes up through it and you have no weeds because those two winter crops are all done. They're ripe, but they, but they covered the ground and prevented anything else from coming up. They kind of sent a signal down saying, don't bother to grow. We're here. Yep. Uh, then, then you can crimp that and plant soybeans. Where we're running into trouble is what do we do after the soybeans? I'm finding the soybeans are not great for soil structure. Soybeans are really, they, they grow in unhealthy soil and they don't do a lot for my soil health. So that, that's kind of a puzzle we're looking at, but we're also working with Cornell to try to figure out what sequences work. I think we need to think about our crop sequences backwards. And I keep going from tools into biology and that's because the, our main, our most powerful tool is the biology, you know, and how to use it. We really need to think rotations backwards as to what would it be nice to be able to plant this crop after? What would be nice for that crop to be planted after? And what would be nice for that crop to be planted after? Well, for, I, I can tell you for us, one of the biggest, one of the biggest things we've found on the soybeans is actually with a relay crop. Yeah. You know, we're, we're putting the soybeans into cereal rye. Yeah. We harvest the rye and the soybeans there, but then uh, usually we've got a decent stand of rye in there. Yeah. Most beautiful planting conditions after that you can ask for. Yeah. It's, it's protected. And how you fully manage that in an organic system, I'll tell you next year more about that because... We've, we've got our first organic rye fields, our relay rye field, so. Okay, we, we've no-tailed triticale into that, but it's kind of, the system starts to sputter at that point. There's, we need to find the right species that wants that environment. Yeah, because, I mean, on a, on a rye field that you've taken grain, how do you manage the volunteer rye? Yeah, well, and that's where if we use triticale, we, we could do that as a forage. Okay. And that, that's where we punted, though, because after taking that with the Austrian winter peas as a forage, then we took advantage of the weed control and plowed it to plant a crop that has to be plowed. And there's some crops like that we have to pull or that we have to dig. You know, that's, but that's unfortunately, we've done all this gaining at that point, but I, I don't have a good next step. Because, well, that, that's what I'm hoping by next year. You know, by next spring, I'm hoping we have access to that light source technology and I can just pull that across the field and mm -hmm. burn off that cereal rye yeah. and then plant right into it. Now, I've, I've tried, I have had really good luck uh, in the past spreading a winter grain right into the soybeans. Yep. Like I've done it where I ran some of the soybeans down and just figured we lose three or four bushel yep. to get the cover crop. But when I do that with rye and crimped, well, if I do that with in soybeans and crimped rye, I lose all my seed. There's something in that environment that's eating my seeds when I throw them out there. Yep. I, I need to no-till them into the ground to protect them from whatever is eating them. Because, well, like flamer, have you done anything with that yet? Or Yeah, I've used the flamer. Uh, what I'm finding is if, if you have a prairie fire or if you have anything... You notice how fast nature re returns that to green. Yep. But I've noticed with a flamer, we have the same thing happening that 
nature just loves to take fire and replace the green real quick. Well, the, the biggest thing I see there is the ground usually gets hard. Yep. And then, but nature is fixing that by, re, yeah, regreening it. I don't like to flame. Yep. I think there are better uses of time and technology. Yeah. Like I said, I just, that, that's, that, that was my biggest hesitation going with the relay rye beans, but uh, I figured it's time to try it. And Well, and the other, other thing we could be looking at in that situation is maybe winter lentils or winter peas that, you know, for, for harvest, because then if you have a volunteer, they sift out easy. Yep. Uh, the winter lentils have been fun because we're the only game in town. There, nobody grows lentils in New York. And first year we had them, my son, we've got a, we build a cleaning facility with optical sorters so we can get it to food grade. Yep. We're actually doing Mark Doodle's beans for him, quite, quite a few of them. And that was, that was number three on the list. We were going to talk about your operations. <laughs> oh, okay. So, <laughs> so these lentils, the first year he had them, he said, I'm, Dollar a pound sounds good. They were sold in about a month. The next year, he said, well, let's try $2 a pound. I must have sold them out too quick. And they were sold in three weeks. <laughs> you know, that that just, uh, that told him that there is a lot of potential here for selling these food-grade crops directly. And if, if people don't want to buy animal products anymore, well, let's grow what they want to buy. Yeah. I'll throw out another comment. I, I got in trouble at a conventional farmer meeting over this because they were talking about you know we need to feed the world we need to feed the world cheap you know this is this is the the mantra and i said is there any other business where a salesman will tell you this is the cheapest shirt on the shelf you'll never find such a cheap piece of clothing anywhere else in the world is that going to sell that product or this is the cheapest car you can buy in the whole world why are we trying to sell our food saying this is the cheapest food in the world and think that's supposed to be a, a selling point that one really ticked some people off, though. Yeah, it's it, it's one of those deals. The further you go down this path, the the I don't know. I guess you just get to the point you don't care anymore. You just you say what you what needs to be said. And, you know, well, I, I've, I've decided it can be fun. <laughs> I mean, if somebody don't like what I say anymore, I don't care. Right. I just I'm gonna say yeah. it and. Uh, you know, if you don't want me back, it's been fun. Well, yeah. and if you can convince me I'm wrong, I'll change my mind. Yep. Ah. Uh, okay. End of fights, mycotoxins, uh, corn, fescue, hay. That was another note. Okay. End of fights is an interesting one. Do you know what the end of fight in corn is that controls corn borer in a natural system? Corn has an end of fight that controls corn borer, and it's called fusarium. So fusarium is actually a beneficial in a healthy, balanced ecosystem. And Dr. Albrecht said that years ago. He said that whether some of these organisms are beneficials or pathogens depends on who they're with. Sort of like some kids, they fall in with a bad crowd and they turn rotten, but if they're in with a good crowd, they'll be fine. And that was kind of how fusarium is. But these endophytes are really an important part of the plant. And they're very similar to us with our microbiome. These, these are organisms that are inside us that perform vital functions. And endophytes are another area we need to study because they provide major, they're, they're being fed by the plant. The plant's not stupid. It's not giving them free food for nothing. 
they are returning some service to the plant in return for what they're getting in, in the way of food. That, that's just a philosophical look at it. I, uh, I had, uh, right now I can't pull it out of my head, but I had some examples of how endophytes benefit us. But the corn with the fusarium is, is a really interesting one to me. Yep. No, yeah. like I said, I just had my notes and, you know, another, another good one that, that was worth all the research I did. And it, it was one of those that kind of was my aha moment. You know, the other night I was watching one of your videos kind of researching for this and rye with organic beans and deer. Yeah. Oh yeah. That's what deer, of, deer don't, don't like getting rye ons poked in their eye. I was like, brilliant. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And yeah. they get so frustrated. They're out there trying to poke their noses down. Yeah, well, you know, I think it was uh, probably 2014 we had, uh, you know, I, I started back then I was doing the twin row rye and plant the beans mm -hmm. in there. And uh, that was kind of the roll roller and that the ideal for that was born, but we weren't quite ready for it yet. So yeah. I, I grabbed a, a stock chopper and I just clipped over top of the beans. Right. Well... The 30-foot the stock chopper didn't have uh, anything in the middle but the gearbox. Mm -hmm. So we left one row of rye, and, you know, we always just joked that was our biological buffer. Mm -hmm. You know, because as I was out there shredding, that one row of rye, it was just a solid row of birds out there. Uh-huh. And they would just be dive-bombing the bee, you know, eating the bugs and that out there in the beans and you know we were just laughing the whole time and so when i i seen that about the deer i'm like okay we got deer and bug patrol now that's right yep <laughs> and you know it, it, it's just some little observations that's right you know? and, and the other observation i had is the bean deer will walk through 100 acres of roundup ready beans to eat an organic bean yeah well, Which is kind of disgusting sometimes, so that we need to protect them with a rye. <laughs> you go back to when I used to farm a lot of state ground, and that was why we started farming or started using BT corn back then. Yeah. The deer wouldn't eat BT corn back then. That's right. Yeah. Until all my neighbors started using BT corn, and then they didn't have an option. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I had one situation where we were growing seed corn. And it was enough to make you mad. The deer went through and detasseled all of the males that we were leaving. <laughs> they, they were sweet and they were going down through and eating all those tassels. Up. Uh, we got another quick question here. Doug McConnell, do you have any experience with argonite for calcium? Aragonite, yes. Um, we have a problem with a little too much calcium. Aragonite is very available. Um, I wouldn't pay a lot of extra money if we have a balanced soil, everything's going to be available. You know, it, but if it's, if it's an economical source, it's a good material to use. We've, we've got a bigger problem here, and that has to do with phosphorus. In our, in our uh, soil, when we stopped using nitrogen, synthetic nitrogen, our pHs went up. Because every pound of synthetic nitrogen removes three pounds of calcium. And if you're using ammonium sulfate, you're taking out more because the sulfur is taking some out too. And when we stop having that source of acidity and the pH comes up, 
the phosphorus combines with the calcium and forms tricalcium phosphate, rock phosphate, which corn has kind of a rough time getting the phosphorus out of rock phosphate. So we've actually had to go to putting sulfur in that band to acidify it. And I wish I'd known now what I knew when I was farming conventionally, because I used to have purple corn even where I put down 170 pounds of map. That's because our soil was pretty well buffered and we were liming according to what we were supposed to. And the map was being tied up as soon as the phosphorus came available, the calcium was latching onto it, tying it up. If I had to do over again, I would have put a little sulfur in there with it and it would have kept it available. Uh, last year, I learned this was an interesting lesson because there was a lot of hand wringing because my son got a new, got the new planter and something went wrong on the fertilizer. And we planted our whole corn crop on my farm with no fertilizer. And it came in at 202 bushel dry shelled across the scales. It out yielded the corn that had fertilizer. <laughs> but it was because that was where fields that we had been farming and managing for a long time, where the other was fields that he had recently started renting. But it was a bit of an eye opener that told us, and not only did we uh, not use fertilizer, we took all the first cutting off for forage. So all the clover was removed for forage, then we plowed it and we still ended up with, with a really nice crop of corn. Must be there was enough active biologically available fertility in there without it. Oh, okay, back to hay, taking hay off. Uh, how much fertilizer is in a ton of dry matter hay? Or two ton? And I had those figures worked up for a talk once. But if, if we take two tons of dry matter forage off our, in clover, off our fields, I had a plant in corn, it's about 4% nitrogen at that stage when it's really young. And probably the yield is closer to two, 3,000 pounds than two ton. But it's 4% nitrogen. There'll be about 50 pounds of phosphorus, P2O5. There could be as much as 120 to, or more pounds of potassium in that hay that comes off. And that's all coming off without apparently the soil needing it for the crop. There's, there's still plenty left for the crop. But when that goes into livestock, uh, that, I hope the manure from that livestock is coming back to my farm. Because that's a huge export of minerals from a farm if you're selling a lot of hay. And it's a huge import of minerals to a farm if you're buying hay. Just, that's just a thought I wanted to leave people with to be aware of mass flow and to be aware of the, the balance sheet of the minerals on a farm. So it's not just balance, it's not just uh, how much goes in and out, but it, it's also this balance. And if we can put that through cows and get the manure back, we have a deal now, I call it our Chinese laundry. We, give, we have neighbors who get all the straw they want free from us. And I encourage them to waste the straw because we get all their manure back. So if they, if they buy their forage, get their forage from us, they get free straw with it and we get the manure back. That fixes the nutrient cycle on their land so that they're not getting in trouble with the DEC for polluting water, but it also closes the nutrient cycle for us and brings those minerals back onto our farm. Mm -hmm. And 
back another thought this, these are kind of some random ones i wanted to make sure we didn't leave out my son pointed this one out to me so when we go through and subsoil the clover and plant that uh rapeseed nature seems to it'll produce a certain amount of clover or a certain amount of nitrogen when it hits that amount of nitrogen the clover stops producing more legumes are sort of like people they only work as hard as they have to and there seem to be these guidelines in nature that it doesn't try to doesn't go outside of them. So by putting that canola in there, the forage rate, we're creating a draw on nitrogen, forcing the legume to produce more. I think that's. I, I think he's on the right uh, track there. Yep. So th those are just some some interesting observations we've made. Uh, another quick comment I had uh, towards the end of my notes there, diversity and flexibility equal risk management. I think that was a quote from your wife. Yes, uh, that's right. Um, and that's, to me, that's our crop insurance. Uh, we've never had a year where every crop did poorly. And the more different, the more diversity there is in a system, I think the more resilient the system is. You know, that's, and that, that's just because things are healthier. And our friend, Dan Barber, who's a chef, I don't know if you've probably heard of him. Oh yeah. Uh, it's another one of those things I didn't even bring up yet tonight, so. Oh, okay. So Dan Dan has made an observation. He, he is, when I first met him, he said, if I have a choice between a really nice, fresh, tasty head of conventionally grown cabbage and an organic head that doesn't taste as good, I'm gonna serve conventional because I want my guests to have the best tasting food there is. And in his work, he's always tracked down when something tasted better than he's ever had it before. He wanted to know why. He didn't come to organic as a, with the idea that it was going to be better. He discovered organic because when he tasted something that was off the charts better than anything he'd ever had before, it always came back to organic. But it wasn't just organic. He said there was a lot of organic that was pretty poor. He could taste the diversity. The very best food that he's had of every kind always came from a more diverse system. And his idea is, and this goes back to the health where I started with Dr. Albrecht and with Dr. Wassan and Sir Albert Howard, that we are hardwired if our taste buds aren't destroyed by sugar and salt to think, to, to actually find that the healthiest food for us tastes the best. That would actually make a lot of sense. So Dan's idea is that when he's taste, serving the very best tasting food, he's probably also serving what makes you the healthiest. Just another one of those ideas that ties to the ties it all together. Yep. And for for the listeners that haven't heard of Dan Barber, he's got a little book called The Third Plate. Highly recommend it. You might hear of a guy named Klaus Martins in it. Now you can say you met Klaus Martins that's in the book. So, but uh, I mean, I'm, I'm fortunate enough. I think it was 2015 when Jill Clapperton told me about uh, Dan Barber and that highly recommended the book then, but I'm stubborn. I don't read. <laughs> and uh, it took me until I think it was two years ago when I finally read the book. Oh, and, you, know, the meantime, you mentioned Jill admit, you not know nothing about the book and all that. You know, I kind of stumbled upon the path and, <laughs> you know, now I'm sitting here trying to, how, how do we help people like Dan, you know, 
we're, you know, just this past week, we're trying to line up the chefs and that for our field week and all that. It, it, it's just. How, you how mentioned we... Joe, you mentioned Joe Clappert. And I need to tell a Joe Clappert story because it illustrates a really important biological point. Yep. We had a, we were at a meeting, the speaker was saying, I really believe in no-till and I really believe in these cover crops and I really believe in diversity, but someone needs to explain to me. And then he showed a picture of a wheat field that he had, that he had no-tilled into a seven cover crop mix or eight or whatever it was, but it was a very diverse mix. And he said it yielded way less than where he didn't have cover crops. Like it, it only yielded about four or five bushels. It was a disaster. And he said, can anyone tell me what went wrong here? And he, he was asking for help. And all of us sat there and he had everything listed, all the different species. Joe Claverton popped up and said, you've got seven different species that all have the same type of root architecture in the cover crop. That's not diversity. And I, I thought that was, that showed that she had really great insight to be able to see these things that other people are missing. And one of my favorite quotes from Dr. Albrecht was he used to tell his students, you've got to learn to see what you're looking at. A lot of us look at things, but seeing them is another step. Well, and you know that, that's that's why I enjoy hanging around with Rick and that. I mean, both of us see the need, and you know that that's why he wants to do this podcast and all that. You know, it's one thing to go to the meetings and talk to people, but it's another thing to have the follow through and just sit here and talk to people and be there to answer the the, the follow up questions and that. And uh, Speaking of which, we got another question from Chris Peltzer. Klaus, what is the next tool or technology on your farm that you you are excited about trying? <laughs> All of them. Actually, there, yeah, there is a machine in Europe, came out of Denmark, and I think it's called the Farm Droid. It's solar powered and it's autonomous. It actually goes out across the field and plants your crops, and then it goes back through and weeds without anybody being on it. Uh, to me, that's kind of exciting. And it's, it's for vegetables. And the, the way it works, it actually records the position of every seed that it drops. Or if it's uh, transplanting, it's recording the position and location of every plant. Uh, you have to have a correction signal in the field with it. But uh, Turned out, um, my son found it and showed me the link to it. And one of the dealers was listed, just turned out to be somebody who had been on our farm. I got in a call once from Michigan. The guy spoke not a word of English. <laughs> and he'd heard that I might be able to understand him. He was from Germany. And he was the head of one of these big farming companies that's farming, actually was farming in Ukraine at the time, yeah. uh, corporate farm. And when he came, he brought a young farm manager with him. And Peter and uh, this young farm manager became friends. And it turned out that, that um, he didn't like the corporate farming. He, made, he got a lot of experience. He didn't like the way they treated the soil. He didn't like the way they treated people. Went back home and became a, a small family organic farmer. But he's now the dealer for this farm droid company. And he has 70 units out. And uh, they're able to, they're using them on conventional farms because it's ch cheaper and works better than chemicals. I was I was in a field in Nebraska or uh, Kansas there last um, last week there 
robot there i've seen several different versions there's there's some pretty cool stuff coming folks yeah this autonomous stuff is really interesting also the our our cleaning facility is using optics and color for making separations we've been able to uh, in some cases take uh, mycotoxins out of brain and have it come out fine i've been able to make some really amazing separations that technology was invented in rochester new york less than an hour from here Yep. The company decided, Kodak invented it, and Kodak decided this would cut into their core business, and they decided to just <clears throat> shelve it. Never crossed their mind that a competitor might take this technology and go with it and put them out of business, which two years later, they were on the ropes financially and went broke. Put out of business by the technology they had invented and decided not to go with because they thought it was going to cut into their profits. <laughs> Interesting tale there. <laughs> yep. But the Chinese have taken that technology now. They're sorting tea leaves, they're sorting vegetables, and they're actually going out and picking berries using this optical technology with artificial intelligence. And that's not stolen. I mean, they, they, they borrowed Kodak's idea, but their innovation is on top of that. That's their innovation that they put on it. Ah, uh, another famous line of yours I always enjoy. Expensive problems are often created by expensive or solutions. Yeah. That's that I'm, it's a sad fact that more people have bought themselves expensive problems. <laughs> yep. And uh, I always tell people I'm a tightwad by nature. We should always do what's free when we're working with improving the farm, do what's free first, do what's cheap second, and don't do anything expensive until you've got enough, until you've done all the other cheap and free things. Most of us have a lot of cheap and free things we could still do. Yep. But everybody wants easy. Yeah, and the magic bullet is so attractive. Quite often it's a deceptive <laughs> lie though. <laughs> Well, I'm sure I've sure enjoyed it. And uh, you want to sit and talk grandkids and all that? We haven't got touched on that one yet. Oh, I'd like to, but I need to get out and feed cows tonight. Yeah. Yep. So I uh, appreciate it. Uh, if there's anything we can ever do back for you, I, I enjoyed this. Oh, well, thank you. Hopefully, was... someday if I make her out there to New York, I'll stop by. If you ever make it to Northeast, Iowa, look me up. Yeah. And, well, uh, uh... I, I like Northeast Iowa. People there are really innovative. Well, we, we, we're going to be fortunate enough this year. We got Dr. Aaron Silva coming for our field day. We're hosting Iowa Organic Association. I believe that's July 22nd, I believe it is. Okay. It's Friday in July. Yeah, thank you. So I just thought of one other thing. This is a project that started Upper Midwest the horseweed problem in Iowa after the big flood. And I remember being in on a couple of meetings where farmers got together to figure out how do we solve this problem. And I think introducing rye, particularly hybrid rye, turned out to help control the horseweed. So there you've got a homegrown application of this principle of adding the right new species to your system can eliminate a major problem. Yep. And the other thing that was nice about that particular deal, at least the part that I was in, 
was that this was homegrown as far as the farmers talked about the problem, talked about possible solutions and followed it through until they had it licked. Well, our, our, our biggest challenge is keeping, keeping pushing forward and, you know, we're pushing pretty hard getting the markets and all that stuff moving forward now. And it, it's kind of fun. You know, one, one of my highlights last year was our daughter's wedding. We had happy hour had, uh, Everything at happy hour was produced off of our farm. So <laughs> well, that's good. Yes. That's a, that's a big step for Northeast yep. Iowa. And uh, right. you know, I just, I, I'm looking forward to the day someday we get the kids, you know, we're trying pretty hard to get the kids more involved, but it, it's a challenge. You know, they all have good jobs now and, you know, daughters married into a strong conventional family. So that's coming with its own hurdles, but. Uh, you're, you're one of those rare Iowa farmers who can eat what they grow. Well, we're getting closer all the time. Uh, I, I, I've had fun digging sometimes a meeting of conventional Iowa farmers saying, is anyone here that's ever eaten anything they grow? Well, well, sad, sad part is we're working on the health part too, but. You but know, when you're growing BT corn and Roundup Ready soybeans, you're not eating anything edible or you're not growing yeah. anything that's edible. Yeah, no, <laughs> no it, it's, we've, we've got a long ways to go on our own yet, but we're, we're trying. Yeah. But yeah, there's so many opportunities in it. Organic is a tremendous market for the diversity that we need. Yep. Yeah. The biggest thing I need around here is more time and effort. Like you said, I'm, I'm an iron junkie. I, I love building stuff and trying to figure out yep. how to make stuff better. So yeah, uh, some, some son, get the young brain around here to let, let them do that part. So my son does his bookkeeping and record keeping while the tractor drives across the field <laughs> and it alerts him when it gets to the end and he makes the turn. Yeah, <laughs> I'm I'm daydreaming, looking how I can make that work better. Yeah, <laughs> of course. So, sometimes you need to spend that time and attention looking back and watching the machine too. <laughs> well, that, that's what I'm doing. Either that, or I'm shooting video, and then I'm sitting there watching the video. Why the thing's working? And right, uh, yep. you know, it, it's like today. I actually had somebody else running. We finished up planting my organic corn and all that today, and. Uh, I actually got to sit and run to watch somebody else run the planter today. So that was, that was kind of fun. And then, uh, hurry up and ran and roll crimp that field. And good. Uh, hopefully one of these days we'll start crimping all the beans now and see That'd what be... happens here. So, but, uh, I'm hoping you have a good year and, uh, likewise. Thanks. Again, I sure appreciate it. And, uh, everybody, thanks for joining us tonight. Uh, Rachel, thank you very much. Thank you. Have a good night. Thank you.